0: Yes, hi, hello, it's me, hey, Goot. Today on Infinite Quest, we have V. Spehar, who you know from Under the Desk News. They are also the founding board member of the Queer Food Foundation, the executive director of Impact for Everything Food. V also created the very successful Harvest RX program, which matches chronically ill patients with farm-fresh produce boxes delivered directly to their home at no fee to the patient. And they are also now the host of the LA Times TikTok channel. I talked to them about how under the desk news came to be, as well as the mission of the Queer Food Foundation, and just some other stuff. They're a very rad person, and we finally decide who has the better hair. Without further ado, here's my interview with V. Spehar. <music> Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's super exciting to be on. So I wanted to ask, first off, just how did Under the Desk News come to be? So I am a
1: person who was finding myself in a familiar situation to many folks, I'm sure, where I was having a difficult time watching the news, and I was more into like reading newspapers at this point and trying to limit the amount of like visual stimulation that I had or like just that influx of really intense news was getting to be quite a bit. Um, And in January, I... Jokingly started doing the news from under my desk to create this kind of like calm news from a safe space, the idea being like when you don't feel well or when you're scared you're on, you might go under your desk at your (laughs) office or something like that. And it started off kind of just as a joke to do just do one and, you know, talking about stuff that was going on in January and one of my friends was like, yo, you better get back under the desk and explain the 25th Amendment because people don't know what it is, or you better get back under the desk and explain what's going on now. And so I just kept speaking directly to people without a lot of visual stimulation in the background and just trying to create this like safe space where we could talk about things without it having to be like heavy, heavily editorialized or biased and just, hey, here's what happened and then you know go do without what you want.
0: Yeah. So it, it seems to be very disarming in a way. Was that intentional?
1: Yeah, it was. And it really just came from the way that I talk to people and the way that I process information, which was if you come at me hot, I'm already panicking. So I can't really like internalize what you're saying. So I wanted to eliminate that in my channel and just kind of be like, here's what happened. This is going to mean different things to everybody, no matter where you are in the world or what your particular walk of life is. So here are just kind of like the facts of what happened, or here's what the bill says line by line without adding in. And this is what it means. And I think folks really appreciated that because it gave them an opportunity to think critically themselves, to kind of apply it to their specific situation instead of running it through my filter of what I think these things that happened mean.
0: Absolutely. So you've described your audience as a generally intelligent, curious group of critical thinkers. Um, to what extent do you think you've attracted these curious, critical thinkers? And to what extent do you think by consuming your content, you've caused your audience to become more curious and to think more critically?
1: I think it's a combination of both. I think when you are a storyteller or any type of entertainer, entertainer journalist, whatever, you have to assume that your audience is thoughtful, intelligent, and great critical thinkers because otherwise you risk offending them and you know telling them things that aren't going to be what they want to hear or aren't going to be the way they want to hear it. So it's not so much that I attracted these types of folks or that they became that way from watching my content so much as I just give, I guess, the benefit of the doubt that every single person coming to the channel comes with the best of intentions. Every single person comes with an open heart and mind and wants to learn and wants to have a good faith conversation about it. And when you do that, that's going to sort of, you know, that's going to filter the way that you're giving info and the way you're presenting things.
0: Oh Yeah, I absolutely felt I certainly felt when I was especially growing up that the news was talking down to me I think it's very often we think of children in particular as being just not smart enough or worldly enough to understand some concept And so whenever I would watch the news with my parents I could always tell that this newscaster was not only talking down to me But also my parents and my grandparents. My gosh, is this really how the news is reported? Um, So I'm curious. What was your relationship to the news growing up and up to now? So growing up in the 80s and 90s, the news
1: was was a little different, right? Like it shut off at a point. I can remember when they would play the national anthem and then they would shut off the TV. That would be the end of it. And you typically the last thing I would watch in the night would be like maybe on Friday nights we'd watch TGIF and then my mom would let me stay up to watch Barbara Walters on 2020. And I loved that because she was always interviewing somebody and I thought that she did such a great job at like being interested in them as a person. So that's like my early days with the news. My parents didn't watch cable news. We didn't have, you know, the Fox, CNN constant type situation going on. And in fact, my dad hated watching the news. So I didn't grow up in a house where, you know, I've heard a lot of folks and seen a lot of folks were like, their dad is getting mad at the TV and getting mad at the news or their parents getting mad at the news and fighting back with the TV. We didn't have that. My parents were like, shut that off. That's annoying. That's trash. We're going to watch two people only. One is Barbara Walters on 2020. And the other one is Diane. Um, we watched Diane Sawyer. Uh, Ann Nyberg did our nightly news and she was our local newscaster and she was also incredibly gentle. And I remember one time she was reporting on a car crash and she cried, and they just paused and let her have like a little tear about it and she was like, I'm sorry, but I'm a real person. And I remember thinking that was so like impactful to me, Ann Nyberg crying about the car crash in New Haven. and so. I think that that played a lot of a role, like seeing people as folks who were really interested in the stories of the public and weren't necessarily just putting on an authoritarian air and using really big words and trying to make people feel dumb if they didn't understand.
0: So I, growing up with ADHD, and which, which heavily affected my reading, I'm not officially dyslexic, but um, I'm learning as I get older and sort of going through my past that I've always had an immensely hard time reading. Um, I always felt the news as being very inaccessible um, mm-hmm. because... The news TV shows, they had things scrolling under the screen and big, cool animation things. And so I could generally focus on one of those things. But what the person was saying was sort of patronizing. And the words on the screen were concerning all sorts of things. Um, Print news was much the same way because it was reading. Do you feel that you're in some way trying to fill a need that wasn't met for you um, throughout your life concerning the news um, since you uh, have ADHD and dyslexia?
1: I think we all try to make things easier for folks like ourselves and we think like I wish I had this and I don't know that I intended on it being this way, like I went into it with a plan to say like I'm going to, you know, be able to provide services to folks with ADHD and dyslexia. Um, But it's just the way that I communicated and it made sense and with TikTok, because I didn't have an editor over me. I could do what I wanted to do. And what made sense to me that oftentimes folks were like, that's dumb. Don't do that. That's not going to work. You can't not use a video package. You can't just stay in eye contact with your camera. You can't do this. You can't do that. If you don't have pictures, they're not going to stay involved. You can't do a three-minute video. You can't do a single topic. You can't just do a headline. And I was like, well, no, I actually, I think I can. And so what I did growing up is I learned early. I could either pay attention to a lecture or read the book. I couldn't do both something about doing both made it very difficult to learn because the information, the way that it filters through the teacher, right, that bias added to what was in the text just didn't work in my brain to how to understand something. So I can remember watching TV shows with my eyes closed when I was young or watching the news with my eyes closed or only reading and then not watching the movie or just watching the movie and not reading. I couldn't do both. And so I wanted to create this thing in which you could just listen to it or you could watch it, but it wasn't so overly stimulating, like you said, because for some folks, you know, I'm looking at the picture of the car over here and I'm like, oh, the, our police cars don't look like that. And then they're talking about a murder and then I'm reading on the bottom that like school's closed tomorrow. Like it just didn't work for me and it, it caused a lot of frustration. So yeah, I think.
0: Hmm. I you know. also So for Kate and me, um, Infinite Quest started as sort of an amorphous side project and has now become an amorphous full-time job. So how is your understanding of the significance of, not just under-the-desk news, because I don't want to, to <laughs> I was going to say box you in, but I suppose your desk is already doing a pretty good job <laughs> of that. Um, uh, but how has your relationship to you being an, an active figure in communicating the news changed since you started doing it? Was it sort of a, you said that it was sort of a small, silly thing you did that suddenly became more important. How has your understanding of its significant change from then to now?
1: I've always been a good communicator and I've always been a a person who could interpret things well and see very clearly big picture and then also change like the way that my brain was configuring to see the brushstrokes of something. Where I struggled in this journey is that I don't have a strong journalist background. I have a strong like facilitator, performer, keynote speaker, explainer, program manager type background. So when I started to get a lot of attention for the account, I started to have people ask me, well, where did you go to school? And I hate that question. It's mm-hmm. like in DC, they ask you the first thing, where do you work, right? Oh yeah. And I'm like, that really has very little to do with what your talents or your skills or your potential is. And so, uh, you know, they just announced this morning, I'm joining the LA Times. And so many of my friends were like, did you just walk on to the LA Times? And I'm like, no, the path to this particular role may not have been the traditional one, but it doesn't mean that it's any less a viable avenue to where I got to. There is a need to perform the news. There is a need to bring an entertainment style to it or a communication style to it that isn't just the traditional. It's seven o'clock, and this is what I'm saying, right, with authority, sitting behind a desk in a very fancy suit. Uh, getting under your desk in a very fancy suit really disarms people, Then they're really, you know, they're willing to listen. You're on their level, and. Um, so, I think that that has definitely helped. But the biggest and hardest thing was not having the pedigree that other journalists have that I am in company with now.
0: Mm. I certainly hear that you're talking to a, a three time community college dropout See? that now gets often put on the same list as people with neuroscience degrees. And I'm like, no, we're not the same thing. It's diff- very different ways of getting to the same place. Um, right. Do you feel that? Did you ever, ever have any moments of sort of doubt? As you were getting to this position now at the, at the LA Times, um, was that what you were aiming for, for one? Or were you just sort of trusting the feel of moving forwards? And did you ever have any doubt trusting that feeling of just keeping going and moving forwards?
1: The LA Times came in a very like universe gift, beautiful way. And I do think that there is a need to anchor the news and anchor the newspapers for the public in a way that cable news has its own benefits and its own problems right the the journalism that you get from a newspaper reporter is so strong and detailed and unique and oftentimes that same type of reporter might not be the person who is going to deliver that story visually or on tiktok or on the news or whatever and i think that this gives us a chance to go back into print news and go back into that old school style journalism but also still have it performed in an authentic, incredible way so that everything isn't just like screaming from one side or the other, like we're telling the story. Um, You know, I think it's why podcasts are so popular. People like to be told stories and they like to be told them in a a, like wheezing way that's not screaming and just kind of allows folks the time to reflect and think about what they're learning.
0: You said earlier that you used to watch, your your parents used to watch very specific newscasters. They would only watch two. How do you feel now becoming one of those people? Do you, what type of figure do you see yourself as being? I mean, you've stated the importance of being sort of unbiased and just stating the facts. Um, How do you want people to see you as a presenter of the news? And how do you, I don't want to say how do you get them to trust you, but how would you like them to trust you? How would you like them to arrive at trusting you?
1: I think they arrive at trusting me because we're in the same room. We're sitting at the same table. I don't want to be, nor will I ever be, let's take like Jake Tapper as a figure, right? I'm not going to be somebody who is an authoritative Pulitzer Prize winning like journalist, right? Who's like coming from this certain particular space. My audience is like sitting in the room with me and we're talking about it. We're reading the thing together and then we're talking about it again. And we're able to just have those kind of open conversations. And I really like that. When I was growing up, the other thing that I used to watch a lot of was Sally Jose Raphael, right? Like I loved her, I really did. And you wanna talk about like a tabloid show, it was not it wasn't, right? She had the ability to talk to people who were some of the worst people in the world and still get their story and some of the best people, deal with emotion, deal with the real human experience. And I always liked that the talk show hosts were in the audience because to me, that's where I wanted to be. You're here, you're in the audience with the people, we're opening the curtain to learn about this particular person or this particular thing that's going on in the world. And then we're kind of closing the curtain and then we're gonna go maybe talk about it at lunch with our friends or something. But it's not, it's not the be all end all. It's more like a place of exploration and learning and then taking that and applying it to your life wherever else you want to. So I think for me, where I wanna stay is in the audience. Like I wanna stay on the side of the people who are also learning. Cause a lot of times I'm just learning about the thing I'm reporting on. Mm.
0: What would you say to people who believe that the presenter of the news is above the audience?
1: I think a lot of people want that, you know, and I I think there's a place for that, too, right? Like there are some times when somebody being an expert and being authoritative and coming from a place above the audience is very... Uh, calming. It gives you a sense of safety, right? That's what we want from politicians or what we used to want from politicians is (laughs) this sort of like feeling of like a parent or like a hero or like somebody who knew what was going on and they were going to get you through it and you were safe. So I think there's some place for that. What I worry about with the news is it is very easy to be um, animated and wrong and just go with it. I'm not even saying they're compromising their integrity or their credibility. I'm saying when you get attention from an audience for doing a certain kind of trick, it's hard to not do that trick anymore. That sometimes that trick runs out. And then you've got yourself to a place where you're sort of boxed into being this, whatever it is, character that you've created. But it can't go any further than that. In a lot of ways, you've damaged your ability to go in another direction.
0: Mm. Do you feel that's, I don't want to say that that is happening or has happened to you with being literally under the desk. But do you worry about that? How do you what does that mean in context of you under the desk?
1: I worry about being wrong. Sometimes I read the articles like four and five times I Mm. read the exact opposite. Like, if I'm reading something, let's say in the Washington Post, I'm also going to read that same story on uh, Washington Examiner or something, which you know, because you've got far right leaning far left leaning. And then I can kind of discern like what the truth is in the middle. If you're reading both sides, you get where the bias came in so that you can eliminate the bias from the facts. My, I'm not worried about getting boxed into under the desk because I think it's a fun, great place. And I am doing other things in the world and folks can see that sort of trust and personality come out from underneath the desk physical space. What I worry about is ever reporting something that is wrong because mm. you really don't get a chance at retractions anymore. The second you say something, that really is, it It goes too quickly. You've got duets flying off. you got stitches flying off. You really, you can never get it back if you say something wrong. So I try to be so careful with what I say. And that's my biggest fear is that somehow some story will be published widely and then turn out to not be true. And then you can't get it back or that fact changed or something, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I certainly feel that way too with, with ADHD related content. Where Mm -hmm. there's something called the uh, International Consensus Statement on ADHD, which is basically everything that scientists around the world have all agreed, stamped, we know this to be true about ADHD. Mm -hmm. But there's always no research being done, which is great. But reporting on a study that may or may not find some correlation is very different than saying this is certainly true. And so I'm at sort of at a point now where reporting on the studies is what I want to be doing, but I'm so terrified that somebody's going to say, oh, Eric said, you know, I don't know, doing Rubik's Cubes will cure my ADHD. And it's like, no, 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 I didn't. There was a slight correlation in one study done by one thing. So I totally understand that fear. Um, I'm I'm curious how you said that uh, you want to be in the audience, a member of the audience. Mm-hmm. And you've also stated that people seem to look for some sort of a calming presence, a steady hand. Um, how do you think... A newscaster, whether they're print or, or uh, visual or media or you know uh, broadcast media, um, can achieve that sort of same steady hand, trust me, I know what I'm talking about type um, aura while still being in the audience. And do you think a person who's not a newscaster, just a person who knows other people, as people tend to do, can have that same air? Because it's often really hard to talk about the news these days with your friends without just basically hitting a bunch of panic buttons. You either have to completely ignore it or freak out about it. So do you think you being a member of the audience, but also speaking with such a steady, clear voice, could be useful for people in everyday situations? That was a couple of questions in one, but...
1: <laughs> that's okay. It's the ADHD podcast. I'm it like, is, i got a all going in the, here,
0: right? Um, on brand.
1: <laughs> first, first question. Um, I... I I don't think that everybody can do it, honestly. I don't think that everybody is an authentic, curious listener, and I think that's okay. Some people uh, listen more quickly than others. Some people like to have things repeated. Some people like to have a fact and a strong opinion and want to get passionate about it because that's the way they communicate. So I think understanding who you are as a communicator naturally is really important. And then auditing the things you don't like about your communication style to improve upon those things. But overall, trying to like copy a style that you you like probably won't work as well as saying like, well, these are the things I like to listen to. These are the ways that I naturally get excited in a conversation. How do I prioritize those parts that are good? And then what else do I want to work on to decide? And then when it comes to friends and family, that is a hard one, man. I Ooh. wish I had an answer for that. Um, there there are a lot of studies that show the escalated investment people have in something that they believe. And since the 1970s, uh, politics has gone from being something that you are or agree with, right, I am a Democrat, and I agree with these laws to something you believe in. And that changed the way that people are going to interact with legislation, which is troubling. And I wish there was a way to go sort of reverse that, but there's not. But when you are dealing with somebody's belief set, they're not going to be as amenable to critical conversation about it. So keeping that in mind for yourself, deciding how much of your energy you're willing to expel on educating this person, understanding if the person wants to be educated or if they just wanna debate you or fight you. And then, you know, I try to neutralize that kind of stuff as much as possible because it's never gonna be a good use of our time and no one's gonna feel good walking away from it. We have walked away from lots of friends and family over the last five years or so. Some have walked away from us. Like there's just some things, now that we have ingrained religion and politics as your beliefs, your moral compass as a person, as opposed to having them be separate, civil or religious, it's harder. So I think we can't deny that it's harder and we can't deny that that's the truth and how people are responding you saying I don't agree with uh, the decisions that the governor of Montana is making for some folks is just as bad as you saying that, you know, Jesus isn't real, it, it is on that level of commitment and it's on that level of right or left and right or wrong. And that that is something that I truly do hope that we break down. I think generationally, we have a good chance to do that. Um, the same people who've been in power since the 60s are the same people that are in power now and a lot of their grudges and their habits and their values are still driving legislation. And I think that the, you know, Gen X and younger definitely have um, a possibility here to say like, we're just tired of that. We just, we were raised in a different time that was taught how to share your toys, was taught how to critically think, like was everything was about not being selfish and doing different stuff. So I think once we actually achieve some level of political power as Gen X and younger generations, we'll see differences, but until then, it's tricky because you're essentially, you know, you've got Pelosi and McConnell have been in power since 1986, so it's been their way or the highway for all of this time.
0: Yeah, I think if I ever got the infinity gauntlet, I think the first thing I would Thanos snap into existence would be congressional term limits. (laughs) I know.
1: High on the list. And they cheat them, you know, and then in 2012, they changed the ways that Congress could invest in the stock market. This is the thing is like, there's so many things that are out front, um, social issues, because those are the easier ones to understand, right? Those also align more closely with religion. And as we're all focused on these social issues, which are, of course, very important, we are not seeing them pass a $760 billion uh, military budget. And then you're not asking what did they spend it on, right? Because troops are very poorly paid. And military grade equipment is the biggest joke going and anybody in the military will tell you military grade is not great. So it's not like, you, know, you would think we would have all this great stuff. You don't see that in 2012, they changed the laws to show uh, so that people in Congress could invest in the stock market, which is obviously, that is a very big problem and should be a problem. We just saw a secret ballot in July, reported on it last night, that the Federal Election Commission has decided now, well, corporations can't directly support a candidate, but they can support a ballot initiative. So foreign corporations can support a ballot initiative in America. That is dangerous, man. But it's hard to understand. And so if politicians are keeping us all very, very busy with all of the different um, social issues, then you're sort of like out of time and breath and reflection and reading power to think about those things.
0: Yeah. Uh, Kate said something to me that one of the benefits of having the ADHD brain is that, um, everything is right next to each other. Everything is just sort of a big pile of papers and they're all next to each other. Um, Kate said that Shakespeare, uh, Kate has two masters degrees in Shakespeare, um, said that Shakespeare used, um, boringness as a literary device. He did it intentionally very frequently. Um, and it seems that American politics uses boringness as a weapon. <laughs> they'll make the really important thing really boring, really boring. And then behind the scenes, they'll, you know, burn someone's houses down. So, of course, we have to go put out that fire, you know, but it's it's really terrifying.
1: And that's why I try with the bills when I'm explaining the bills or legislation that's passing that's also written in a certain kind of language and a certain kind of cadence that's made to reflect like the, you know, their style guide for DC and the way that laws are written. And it's very confusing. And there's a ton of stuff you don't need to do. And growing up in Connecticut at the time I did, I was very lucky in that they taught me how to speed read. This was Connecticut's answer to uh, the talented and gifted children who all are burnt out and have ADD right now. So, and with the dyslexia on top of it, it was a mess, but wow they taught you to essentially speed read through the middle of the page and look for high level concepts. That's something that people will like pay extra to learn how to do now. That's how I learned to read. So I can go through and I can learn, I can see like what the concepts are. I can kind of see like big pictures, almost like looking at one of those magic eyes where Mm. like, okay, well, if I hold it here, I can see this. And if I hold it here, I can read for brushstrokes. So I can do that, get the high level of the bill. I know who the politicians are, what their motivations are you can then apply what you know their biases are to that bill and then you can say okay well what are they trying to get out of this as a talking point is this just something to stump on the floor about is this something they're actually going to pass is this something they're trying to hide stuff in so when i do those bills i'm like uh here is hr1 this is exactly everything it says right here is uh this bill that's never going to go anywhere in the whole entire world and it's about why um can't just think of something absurd and I'm like okay well they're just trying to get their talking point out that's never going to happen there's never going to be a time where we do whatever thing is that they're saying so I wish I had an example of one right now but there is frequently people will oh just because it's the only one of my example that popped into my mind right now but I'm not making fun of her and I'm not criticizing this particular party Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a bill both to fire Dr. Fauci and to impeach Joe Biden. She knows that she doesn't have the votes to do that. It's not about having the votes to do that. Those are two actions that allow her, the talking points that she needs to continue to fundraise and push her particular agenda, get her base riled up. Those are bills that uh, a congressperson would never responsibly submit because they know that it's gonna waste floor time. It's never gonna get the votes. It's, it's political theater, right? So, again, not picking on her or the Republican Party in particular, it's just that's the easiest one for me to remember right now is something that's like very clearly for alternate purposes.
0: Hmm. Now, I, I can imagine that somebody might have heard what you just said, basically a breakdown of this bill was introduced, not in order to be passed, but as a device for some you know, other game that's being played as a, as a move, basically. Yep. Um, I think uh, something that often gets confused, or two things that often get conflated, um, are biased and legitimate insight from a qualified person. Right. How do you think, uh, well, I suppose, how do you deal with that distinction? For example, you just gave me, I would not describe as biased at all, but it mm-hmm. is from a specific perspective, which is right. a perspective of a person who understands these things, how do you walk that line or how do you draw that distinction in your content because i believe you do that quite successfully it's something that i'm very grateful for is that you do give that insight but you don't do it for a purpose you just state it sort of as true how do you plan to to maintain that balance going forward
1: i think you have to recognize that other people's biases when they're looking at me as well i get one of the biggest comments i get is i don't think we agree politically but i like the way you talk and i'm like okay but I haven't said any of my opinions on politics. And I think if you knew what they were, you would be rather surprised who I've worked for and like what I've done in the past. And they will come, they're coming into it with their own bias. So oftentimes I have to tell them upfront, it's okay to listen to me. So I'm like, I am not, I don't have an agenda here to say at the end of what I'm about to say to you, I'm going to tell you something else. The opposite is correct. When Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced this law, it was done like this. It happens all the time Off Oftentimes, then I'll say it's like when Pelosi tore up Trump's speech, there are things that they do because they need press attention, because when they get that press attention, they have a different call to action, right? So we've got like the bait. It's the th- It just happens everywhere. It's exactly what happens. So I think people then recognize that because they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand the bait. I've seen her then. that on the house floor okay whatever get out of here and then go immediately outside and talk about fundraising and talk about uh which camp uh candidate she needs to be supported that's running for election right now or talk about something that trump wants to say that he can't get his point out because he doesn't have the twitter like you can see very clearly when you know that these are the things that everybody does all i want folks to do is be able to recognize it so like when Cory Booker does it or when Marjorie Taylor Greene does it or Jamie Raskin or Pelosi or anyone of Kenneth McCarthy, whoever it is, then you can say, okay, I just watched the bait and call to action switch. So now I know. And it's sort of, I just want people to feel involved in the process and understand a lot of this is normal. And once you recognize the plays from the playbook, it's like watching your favorite sports team. You're like, oh, good move. All right. (laughs) You know, or whoa, that's an illegal move. I don't like that. You know, so you can I just think it helps people understand. And then they're not coming at me and going like, oh, you're being biased. You're tearing up this side or the other side. They're like, okay, I don't like what you said, but I understand why that's true. But I still believe what she says. And I'm like, okay, you can still believe what she says. That's totally okay. I'm not telling you to believe her or not believe her. I'm just telling you these were the motions. That bill's never going to go anywhere. That's why I'm not reporting on it.
0: Hmm. So what do you think the, uh, do you think the rise of short form content Um, TikTok, uh, YouTube shorts, Instagram reels. Do you think overall they've been good for public relationship to news or bad? Probably a bit of both. But overall, what do you think the trajectory is? Do you think it's a net positive, net negative? What's the vector there?
1: I think it's really cool that people can connect with each other in a way that we've never been able to before. And different talent can break through in circumstances that they would never have been picked. That I would never, ever be picked to do what I do if someone else had to come up with Under the Desk News and was casting it. They never would have picked me. They would have picked somebody else who went to Walter Cronkite School of Journalism or something like they would have picked somebody else, right? So I think that there is such cool opportunity that comes for people And on the other side, anybody can be an expert. Anybody can say anything. And they have watched enough of the short form content and they can move their accounts around enough that like I said, once you get that point out, that's what it is. We watched it, I watched a video um, a couple months ago and I work in food supply chain and food security. Um, That was my main thing before I was doing this. And folks were tagging me in this farmer's account and he was saying how he had to destroy his crops. The government was paying him to destroy his crops and that there was going to be a food shortage. Turns out that was a satirical video of somebody who was like making fun of the doomsday preppers. But you've got a farmer on a John Deere tractor mowing down corn and it looks like, and he's shaking his head and it looks like real, right? So why wouldn't people believe that? Of course they believe that. I would. It looked real, It, you know. And it wasn't real. The government doesn't, you know, the only time that we would ever pay somebody to destroy crops is when they tell us that those crops were already destroyed and there are subsidies for farmers in place to make sure that farmers can continue to put food on their own tables when their crops fail. That is the USDA standard. It has been for hundreds of years. So that's not true. It's true and it's not true, right? It's the way that the truth is being
0: told. You just provided me an excellent segue. Um, I was wondering if you could talk actually um, a bit about uh, the Queer Food Foundation. You're a founding board member of the Queer Food Foundation. I'd love to hear just what you have to say about it.
1: So, you know, like everyone who uh, wanted to end up on Broadway, which was my original dream as a youth, I ended up with a career in food. And so recently... I was working for the James Beard Foundation and I was their director of impact. Uh, James Beard Foundation for folks who don't know is like the Oscars of chefs. So like this is the award that they win. It's like the highest honor you can get. It has a long history of being like the arbiters of excellence and all this kind of like elite stuff. And then they decided that they wanted to care about the environment and food and people. And so they brought us in as this impact team to manage things like LGBTQ inclusion in restaurant culture, um, women's leadership in the kitchen, uh, sustainability in seafood, sustainability in crops. Uh, they worked with um, The Hill on the Black food farmers um, reparation stuff. Like, there's a ton of cool stuff that this organization was doing. And at the time the pandemic hit, they ended up cutting an awful lot of these impact programs because it was like, okay, well, who's funding it? And all the restaurants are closed and everything's crazy. So, This woman that I had worked with previously, Gabrielle Leonard, founded Queer Food Foundation, asked me to be a board member. There's a bunch of folks from the scene in it, and the idea is to advocate for queer inclusion in an authentic way and tell those stories. There are a lot of organizations that were working for, like, women's equality or were working for BIPOC recognition. There was a lot of organizations who were telling better stories about colonization of food. And there wasn't really a lot about the queer journey in food and their importance within this ecosystem. And so that's what we work on now is raising people up and talking about queer food culture, queer food pathways in a way that you might talk about Jewish food or Asian food or black food because it is its own little niche um, world and there's a lot of importance to it. And there's a lot of pain that has come from queer people in in the food world. There used to be a joke that all the waiters in New York City were gay and it was a joke and it wasn't a joke because that was really the only job that we could get back in the 60s and 70s. And so for queer men who were out, a lot of times your job was in food service. It's the land of the misfits for a reason and it remains that way and we want to protect some of that but we also want to bring some respect to um, the industry in a way that's like because this is the journey we came from, this is where we wanna go, and this is how we actually authentically include people without exploiting them.
0: Hmm. So you use the term twice, um, authentically include them. Yeah. What does authentically include them mean versus inauthentically?
1: It means that we, queer is one of the things that a chef might be. It's not the first thing that they are. They are French trained or they are fusion or they are self-taught or they are whatever the case may be. And they are also queer. What happens a lot of the time is June rolls around and everybody gets a call, right? It's pride month and I wanna do everything with you and then I don't hear from you the rest of the year. So what we wanted to do was talk about trans inclusion uh, when it comes to setting guest expectations in the restaurant. If you're gonna hire a trans person to work as the barista at your counter or something like that, you have a responsibility to that person both as the employer, but also the entire atmosphere and who you're serving. What types of guests are you gonna allow? Are you going to say, well, I can't do anything about the guest, well, then you really shouldn't hire that person because it's more damaging than the DEI you think it is. So authentically including means understanding the queer community, their habits, the needs that they have, the social structures they grow up within, the family that they have, it's different um, often and requires different accommodations and just helping people figure out what those are and do it the right way. Could you clarify what D.I.E. means? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So oftentimes we get included, but we don't get like uh, authentically included. We'll get invited to the dance, but we will still be a spectacle in some cases. So the idea here is to normalize the fact that queer people exist in the world and it doesn't have to be a thing where it's like, hi, this is my gay friend and they're a chef. It's like, hi, this is my friend, they're a chef. That's it. And then if they're queer, like, that's okay, too. But it doesn't have to be this, like, leading thing to prove that you are, um, you know, doing the right work or you're inclusive. Hmm.
0: So I think, I think we, we could certainly both agree, and I'm sure the vast majority, if not all of the listeners of this, would agree that queer people should be included in the, the hospitality industry just because, of course, they should. Yeah. Um, so just that by its own merit. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think the hospitality industry is missing out on? by not including them as authentically as they could or as it could
1: so it's more of a conversation of who gets priority and the impact that has on the taste of this nation what the food of this nation is and what the general public gets to have because taking queer folks or women or other minorities of any type are less likely to get funding for their restaurant they are less likely to win an award they are less likely to get a write-up And those things influence what food is available to you in this nation. And that I think is actually the bigger issue here. So, what we're trying to fix and what we want to continue to build conversation around is it's not just like, okay, well, it's June, so let's support gay owned restaurants. It's this person has an incredible idea, and convincing the banks and the powers that be and the folks in the awards circuit that just because they don't look like you or they're not what you're used to, or they're not cooking French European food, they are still worthy of your time and your investment. And that is something that we work really hard on because that's really what's going to make the difference. If we continue to center and prioritize French uh, American culinary, which is like, you know, from like way back in the day, what people decided was like fancy food here, you're just missing out on so much other food and so many other dining experiences. And like, It's a, it's a bummer, man. It's a bummer that the American diner really has very limited options when it comes to social dining, which is such a core part of society.
0: Hmm. So uh, I think it's interesting. So you said you wanted to be a a Broadway actor. You wanted to be a (laughs) a star. Yeah,
1: I went to school for theater (laughs) and everything. I think that's probably why (laughs) part of why I'm a good communicator.
0: I'd imagine. I do well, call
1: it performing the news. So
0: <laughs> Well, oh yeah. Well, I mean, when uh, Kate and I know for sure that, you know, our mission is to to advocate and educate about ADHD and neurodivergence, yeah. but people aren't going to listen if you aren't entertaining. You have right. to perform it. You have to present it. Um, so you were going to go to Broadway, uh, ended up become, going to the hospitality industry, worked your way up from being a dishwasher, from what I've read in yeah. my research. Yeah, um, my
1: first job. Well, my very first job in the whole world was working at a dry cleaner. I was 12 years old and I worked for my grandmother who actually had the job there and I helped her and it was like the greatest moment of my life. I remember the first time I got a paycheck. I mean, it was like completely under the table, definitely child labor and illegal, but family business. (laughs) Do you remember how much it was? I do. I got $4 and 25 cents an hour. I remember everything about it because the very first time that I got my envelope of money was a Saturday when I finished working. And that Monday, my dad used to go to work at like four in the morning and I got up to tell him I didn't need lunch money. And I was like, I mean, I was like so excited about this that I had like worked and I didn't need lunch money. And then my little brother was like, you're so dumb. You should have just taken the lunch money and had your money. All (laughs) right. The younger brothers there i'm the oldest we're always like the most responsible in life
0: <laughs> I, like, that was dumb <laughs> I, I hate the phrase there are two types of people in this world because yeah no there are not two types of people in this world but that is where i would say there are two types of people in the world yeah. people who took the lunch money and people who are proud of the labor um, yeah <laughs> but uh so you worked your way from dishwasher to eventually being the uh, director of impact for the james beard foundation yeah which is one just amazing um, yeah. And then pandemic happened. My, my mm-hmm. story was much the same way. I was, I was a trained musician for a while. And then eventually that stopped being the thing. And mm-hmm. I went into the hospitality industry. I worked as a cook slash chef, whatever people want to call mm-hmm. it, for a long time. I eventually got pretty high up in what I was doing. And then pandemic and then mm-hmm. TikTok, which sounds like it was a similar thing for you. Um, I sort of landed and got traction being the ADHD hair guy. You know, I yep. got the hair and, and whatever. The hair really helps on
1: TikTok. Anyone listening, you gotta have good hair on TikTok.
0: Oh, it does. Well, I, I was gonna <laughs> ask actually. Uh, people have told Kate and me, well, more specifically me, unprompted, might I add, that uh, you and I are tied for the best hair on TikTok. So my question is. Okay. Do you agree with that assessment or do you think they're just trying to spare my feelings?
1: No, I definitely agree. You have great hair. You have good curl, <laughs> good
0: volume. Looks fluffy. I totally agree. There's a lot of good hair on TikTok. There really is. There really is. Um, but so I, I had a, sort of a similar sort of a thing. I mean, I think mm-hmm. not, not to compare each other or something like that, but, but, but yeah, the but... feels were similar. Um, and I got to say, I'm scared shitless all the time. I'm terrified all the time that if I stop being the ADHD hair guy, then I'll fall off. So I'm curious, when you inevitably get your own show, Mm -hmm. are you worried more that they're going to make you stay under the desk? Or are you worried more that people aren't going to care once you're not under the desk?
1: No, because I've been aware of that from the very, very beginning. And I think that came, if there's one thing I learned in theater school, that was it is that you cannot get yourself typecast into a place where that's the only thing that you are and I had that problem in theater school and I had that problem when I was performing professionally I always got cast as a bad boy from the bible I am not I cannot tell you how many times I have played like the narrator or Cain or Judas or always right always 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 playing this particular type of character which worked but when you are creating a character for TikTok and you, you want it to be your thing, it will become who you are. And so you have to know that is who you are. Like you can't change that. That is a fact, that is a truth. You will always be ADHD hair guy. I will always be under the desk. And that is a joyful, safe home. But then we start to show them other sides of us. Now within the under the desk TikTok channel, I will never not be under the desk. I will always be that. I love being that. People love that. That's not going anywhere. I've been mindful to build outside of that. TikTok was always a jumping off platform. I don't think it's like if you get, you know, like so I don't have a YouTube, but I know people who do. And they're like, yeah, but when you get a YouTube, I mean, that's really your thing. You can live off of that. You cannot live off of the TikTok Creator Fund. I want so clear with people you cannot live off of TikTok. You need to have a diversity of other products. So is that like for you, this podcast, that's something that is going to be built out. For me, I was doing keynote speeches. I still do. I do facilitating. I do emceeing, interviews, all kinds of stuff like that. I was always building that. I never stopped thinking about that. So that whatever channel I had, I'm V from under the desk, but it's an exciting and fun thing. And like, oh my God, it's like seeing a teacher outside of school. You have to make it cool to be outside of your universe too. Otherwise- it is really, really difficult. And it is scary because TikTok is fragile, man. It is a fragile platform. You could lose your account in a second. It, they don't care. So my advice to anybody would be, be dedicated to your thing. Make sure that's what you really wanna do and where you wanna be. Um, and then understand what you're building outside of it is always gotta be running parallel to your main thing, but it won't be integrated into your channel. I had this question for people when I wanted to do shit talking and speculating, because my whole thing is about not having an opinion. But I was like gonna do an Elizabeth Holmes trial channel or like a burner channel. And people were like, oh, please don't do that. I just want it all here. I like to visit you here. And I was like, okay. So then I had to create that delineation of I'm taking off the suit and I'm above the desk. I changed the lighting. I changed the way my hair looks. Sometimes I even change my glasses to make very clear that this is not an under the desk episode. This is a moment with me hanging out, and we're buds and we're just talking because we do have this relationship. And that way, you can build alternate characters into your channel, but you got to always be looking for. I was always looking for something in the real world um, that TikTok would be the jumping off platform to get.
0: Hmm. Now, uh, I I have one final question that, that I always sure. I always ask our guests. I've asked Kate too as well, but <laughs> it's hard for two ADHD people to to be on the same page ever. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, for you, I actually have two questions. One, do you ever do the V introduction speech from V for Vendetta when uh, you introduce yourself? I
1: don't, but I should. I should. I definitely,
0: would. I'll that, that. You, as a performer, that might be an awesome thing to have under your belt just at any yes. given time, just to throw out at a cocktail party at some point. <laughs> um, but also, um, first off, before I ask this last question, it's a whimsical one. It's more of a getting to know you sort of sure. James Lipton type question. So before that, I just wanted to thank you again so much for being here. Um, and is there anything you'd like to, I don't want to say plug, but I clearly just did. So uh, what are you working on? Where can people find you and...
1: Um, You know, TikTok is still my main gig. So definitely check out the TikTok. I'm doing the, I'm now hosting the LA Times TikTok. So I'm going to do a couple pieces of content for them per week and then be bringing in some guests to talk about specifically, not just LA, but the California perspective. So West Coast perspective on things happening in DC, stuff that's happening with the environment, a little bit of entertainment, but not really. And the whole vibe there is to similarly build out that channel as a place where you can kind of like chill, listen to what's going on. It's not the Washington Post, not the New York Times. It's not the intense intensity of the East Coast papers, but it's just as credible and just as important. Um, And that's why I said yes to them. And I was really excited about them because it is this still kind of safe space for news. Uh, Yeah, those are my two main things right now, man. Really excited about those.
0: Right on, and congratulations. Very, wow, just just congratulations. Um, Now, so if you could magically, just all of a sudden, be able to play every instrument in the world masterfully, or speak every language in the world eloquently fluently which would you choose
1: well my wife is a cellist so I'm going to choose the speak every language because she can
0: play almost every <laughs> instrument so I feel like
1: I feel like that was a ringer question definitely speak every language I think that that would be just so incredible think of like what what an expansive life you could have if you could just talk to people in their own native language and like just all the idiosyncrasies that come with that and just the experience of that. I think would be really, really
0: cool. Yeah. A very deep sadness within me that I try not to think about just before bed is if a person, just a random person on earth were to magically appear in front of you, there is a very high likelihood that you wouldn't be able to speak the same language and talk to each other.
1: Isn't that wild? I know it is a bummer. It is a bummer.
0: Well, V, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for teaching me everything you've taught me. Um, just thank you very much for everything that you do.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, Eric. And I, I wanted to come on and talk to you because I think that folks oftentimes have a false idea that the people that they admire who are smart or academic or journalists have this, like they're reading all the time and it's easy for them. It's not, I'm freaking dyslexic with ADHD. (laughs) Like I have to either watch TV with my eyes closed or read like it's, it's wild, man, but you'll find your own accommodations and you really can do You can go where you want to go. You don't need an expansive vocabulary. You don't need an Ivy League degree. Just if you like talking to people, figure out how you want to talk to them more.
0: Awesome. And if you'd ever like to come back and talk about more neurodivergent-focused conversation, the news-focused conversation, we'd love to have you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Eric. All
0: All right. Thanks, V. And that's it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again, V, for being here. It was just a pleasure to have you. This is normally the time when we would do the Patreon song, but Kate couldn't be here at the time of this recording, and it just wouldn't be the same without them. So uh, expect a super-duper long one next week. It's going to be great, and we're probably going to say Sarah Hoff's name about 10 million times. Anyways, please be kind to yourself. Take your meds, drink some water, eat some food. We love you.